When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we get started, a quick word. Uh, First, if you're finding this from the digital copy and are looking for an audio version or saw this shared somewhere else on the internet, welcome. To those that are regular visitors to this podcast, welcome back. I have an audiobook in store for you today, a two plus hour long work that I've put a considerable amount of time into writing, revising, and recording. It's lengthy. So be sure to bookmark this page, download the podcast version to your device, or else add it to your watch later list on YouTube. Real quick, I'd like to humbly ask that you share this with your friends, spouse, mom, dad, children, cousins, aunts and uncles, on your Facebook page, Twitter, in forums, or with anyone else that needs to hear this content. Doing so helps me reach outside of my normally small bubble on YouTube and beat the relentless algorithm of stagnation. I truly hope you enjoy this work. Let's begin. Introduction. I hope the title of this book caught your attention. I'll go ahead and soften the tone presented in the title by stating outright that it is not my intention to degrade any prepper, nor is it my goal to present myself as an entirely well-rounded prepper that has thought through every possibility. That's simply not the case. In fact, there are holes in my own preps, holes that consist of deficiencies in knowledge, skills, gear, and other physical preps. However, the purpose of this book is to demonstrate that it is the holes in our preps that we are unaware of that are perhaps the most dangerous. For the novice prepper, I hope this will serve as a great starting point on a variety of topics. For the seasoned prepper, I hope it offers useful food for thought that will better round out your physical preps, your mindset, and prevent any unforced errors in any future survival scenario. I want to be clear that the purpose of this book is not to serve as a how-to manual, nor is it meant to be a comprehensive, all-inclusive tome of prepping knowledge. Instead, in all 21 topics presented, I want to give you a starting point to consider and act upon. That action may involve a significant change in your plans, your mindset, or your physical preps. Ideally, any action will involve further research. Each of the topics listed warrants a book of its own, and a wealth of knowledge already exists for each prepper to discover on the internet and elsewhere, should they undertake that effort to search for it. I've purposely omitted any prepper lingo or abbreviations for the sake of those that may be unfamiliar with such terminology. There will be... There will not be any instances of SHTF, the end of the world as we know it, BOB, that's bug out bag, WROL, without rule of law, etc. Additionally, I have focused this book on a wide variety of scenarios ranging from natural disasters that are relatively short-lived and of a small scale to large-scale, long-term, collapse or reset type of events. With that being said, it is the latter that requires a greater level of preparation. For that reason, I do often mention the less likely but absolutely disastrous type of scenarios such as a continent-wide failure of the power grid. For those that think such scenarios are unlikely, well, I hope you're right. To some extent, I agree. But I do not find such events impossible. 
In a world in which the possibility of EMP attacks, nuclear war, massive solar flares, and cyber attacks are a distinct possibility, I'm comfortable considering each scenario, even if their likelihood is low. Finally, if you enjoy this work, be sure to go to the end of this book to find more of my work, including my fiction work that includes the Civil Strife series, a post-apocalyptic economic and societal collapse thriller that will keep you at the edge of your seats. Tip number one, it's all about the calories. Food is often found at the center of a prepper's physical preps. Indeed, food does share the bottom of the pyramid that is Maslow's hierarchy of needs with a number of other essentials. Furthermore, it is one of the easiest preps that nearly anyone can purchase with little in the way of negative consequences stemming from such purchases. If the food isn't used in a survival situation, it can be used for, well, food. The same isn't necessarily true for a box of road flares, a bulletproof armored vest, or water purification tablets. However, selecting correct foods is also something many preppers get wrong. The human body requires a myriad of micronutrients, nutrients that we usually refer to as vitamins and minerals. When it comes to survival, such nutrients can be important, but are also easily obtained through the use of multivitamins. It's not ideal. The ideal would be to obtain the micronutrients from a well-balanced diet. However, it is adequate and generally will prevent any side effects of, of insufficient intake of any specific vitamin or mineral. It's also important to know that, in many cases, the human body can go many days or even weeks without the consumption of some micronutrients with little in the way of negative side effects. More important to the survival situations that many of us are preparing for are macronutrients. Macronutrients consist of fat, carbohydrates, and protein. All three are important to our daily diet, and our body functions best when we can we, when we consume a regular amount of all three. But at the end of the day, the most important consideration should be caloric intake. After all, if you anticipate a complete lack of food availability in your locale for, let's say, upwards of a month, the goal of a food store is to prevent starvation. Starvation, much like the weight loss that so many seek to achieve through diet and exercise, occurs as a result of a caloric deficit. A caloric deficit is when the number of calories consumed is less than the number expended by the body. With starvation, due to an excessive caloric deficit, comes increased fatigue, weakness, and muscle atrophy. Our body uses the protein in our muscles for energy. It also can have a significant negative impact on the growth and development of infants and adolescents. Uh, thus, the main goal we are trying to achieve by storing food is to avoid starvation and its many negative consequences, including death. This, thus far, may seem like common sense. Some of you may be thinking that this book isn't worth reading after all, but here's the important takeaway. The food that I see many store for long-term survival does not follow this principle of placing importance upon minimizing the caloric deficit through the storage of calorie-dense food. Calorie-dense is a term that, in this case, refers to a food that contains a large number of calories for a given serving size. Soup, as a rule of thumb, is not calorie-dense. Many beans and legumes are not calorie-dense. Lean meat is not calorie-dense. Those precious beans and peas, carrots and beets, lettuce and tomatoes, and any other manner of vegetables that you spend many hours tending to in your garden simply are not calorie-dense, with a few exceptions. Potatoes, for example, give a good bang for your buck. 
Notice that I did not say that such foods aren't healthy. They are quite healthy and a great part of anyone's diet, whether they live in a post-apocalyptic wasteland or in a suburban first world society. It's great food for someone to look to to fill themselves up while not eating too many calories. But we need to be realistic. The caloric expenditures of many of you reading this book range from 2,000 to 3,000 calories per day. In a survival situation, expect that number to increase significantly. For some, that increase may be by 50% or more, depending on the level of physical exertion, as well as some other factors, such as surviving a cold climate. Be realistic. Look in your food storage. Examine the selection you've accumulated. How much of the food qualifies as calorie dense? Peanut butter is a good example of a food item that is calorie dense. In fact, many fatty foods check that box of being calorie dense. Oil, nut butters, and the like are often the most calorie dense foods on your shelf. Grains, such as rice, wheat, oats, barley, etc., as well as products made with grains, such as pastas, are fairly rich in calories. Many survival foods, such as the 2,400-calorie emergency food bars you can buy in the outdoor section of your local Walmart, or the freeze-dried buckets filled with weeks or months' worth of individual meals, are often quite calorie-dense and well thought out in this regard. As you look through the selection, you are also likely to find some items that may not qualify as calorie-dense. Many of these I've already mentioned. Canned soups, jerky, canned vegetables, and some legumes are good examples. Should you toss them out? Not necessarily. However, it is important to ensure that the majority of your stored food is calorie-dense and is adequate for you and your family's caloric needs. In essence, both space and monetary funds are a limitation for most when it comes to prepping. When selecting your food preps, variety is important, as is a well-rounded, nutritious profile of foods. However, we should not forget that the most important goal of stockpiling food is to avoid starvation for ourselves and those we love. Thus, the highest emphasis when selecting survival foods should be placed upon caloric content. Tip number two, it's all about the calories. No, that's not a typo. Let's talk more about calories. The term generally is interpreted as an amount of energy our bodies can extract from a given amount of food or drink. However, I want to instead focus on the scientific definition of a calorie. A calorie, by definition, is the amount of energy required to heat a single gram of water by one degree Celsius. It's sometimes referred to as a small calorie, and the calories we see listed on the side of food labels are actually kilocalories, though are also referred to as large calories or simply calories. It's a bit confusing, I understand. Uh, by definition, a kilocalorie or large calorie, is the amount of energy required to heat a single kilogram of water by one degree Celsius. The calorie is a bit of an old school metric system unit and has largely been replaced by the joule when discussing energy in scientific terms. However, I think the scientific definition of a calorie is pertinent to a discussion of food storage and preparation for a collapse or disaster scenario. Question. In your food preps, how much of your food is ready to eat? I'm referring to food that you can take out of the packaging and eat with no preparation necessary. Follow-up question. How much of your food is not ready to eat? Bags of rice, buckets of freeze-dried survival foods, dried beans and lentils, wheat, milled corn, oats, etc. would fall into this category. If you're like most preppers, 
The answer is that the vast majority of the food requires preparation. The rationale for keeping large amounts of unprepared food is obvious. They're often the cheapest to purchase and can be stored for long periods. However, they do have a significant drawback, and that relates to the classic definition of a calorie. Each food that requires cooking also requires a significant energy input for correct preparation. Without cooking such foods, they're far less palatable, or in the case of uncooked kidney beans, no longer edible. Look it up, it's true. In today's first world countries, such energy input is relatively plentiful. An electric stovetop, oven, pressure cooker, or microwave can make quick work of such meals. However, in a grid-down scenario, such electric sources of heat are rendered useless, unless you have a generator or other alternative power source. Gas stoves and ovens are, are more options. Many can be lit without a pilot light, though they are often fed from, from centralized locations, that locations that may lose power in the most severe of outages. Only those outside of city limits commonly use tanks or natural of natural gas or propane stored on site outside of their homes. Uh, additionally, many gas stoves and ovens rely on a vent system to vent carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide. In the absence of this system, increased attention needs to be paid to ventilation. The high amount of required energy input can present a problem for many preppers. Let's consider this scenario. You live in central Wisconsin. It's the middle of December and a large widespread event occurs that brings down the power grid for over a majority of the continent. You have used electric appliances for food preparation for many years, but you suddenly find such luxuries unusable. You have a wood stove to help keep the home warm, but cannot use such a device to effectively boil a pot of water. The process simply takes too long. How will you heat the water necessary to cook the many months of unprepared food that sits in your pantry? If your answer is to make a small campfire outside for such purposes, you will soon find yourself quite unsatisfied with the time required to boil the water and the large amount of precious wood that will be used to prepare meals. Preparing foods that require cooking is suddenly a significant drain on time and resources. Of course, alternatives exist. There are ways to get this right. The point of this thought experiment is simply to get your mind turning. It's a problem that is too often left unconsidered. What alternatives exist? On-site propane and natural gas tanks, for some, are a viable option. They also can be used for heating the home in a furnace, it's generally not recommended to use a gas stovetop or oven to heat the home because of excess carbon monoxide and dioxide emitted. Don't forget, however, that the furnace will require electricity to operate. A fireplace in the home, though less efficient for heating the home when compared to a wood stove, can be set up in a manner that allows for this cooking. It's a no-brainer if you already plan to use the fireplace for heating and allows you to capture more of the precious heat for the purpose of cooking rather than allow it to escape through the chimney. Another obvious solution is to simply use a generator to run such appliances. However, depending on your level of preparation, a generator may not be available or the amount of fuel you have stored for the generator is inadequate for a long-term grid-down scenario, especially if it's in competition with your main mode of transportation for your dwindling stores of fuel. Means of cooking that are commonly utilized when camping, such as small alcohol or propane stoves, are an option, though they may not be a great long-term scalable solution, especially for those with larger households. They also are often unsafe to use within the house. 
Cooking multiple meals a day for weeks or months is an obstacle that you need to consider and plan for. However, don't take this as discouragement of storing such foods. They are cheap, often calorie dense, and should make the core of any prepper's food stores. With that being said, it does make perfectly good sense to store several days or weeks worth of food that requires little to no preparation, especially for grid down scenarios that only last days or weeks. Another way in which to minimize the fuel and heat required is to consider cooking times for foods. Uh, emergency foods that require heat for preparation generally do not take long to cook. The same is true for quick cook oats, pre-cooked rice, and similar alternatives to actual rice or oats, both of which take considerably longer time and more energy to prepare. Take the time now, before disaster strikes, to consider the correct mix of ready-to-eat, and unprepared foods and ensure you have a realistic and efficient manner in which to cook foods. Tip number three, poop happens. Human waste is the antithesis of sanitation. Look no further than the average 19th century city or indeed many cities around the world today and you will see the consequences of too much human waste and not enough infrastructure to dispose of the urine and feces. Such excesses of human waste are likely to become reality in many first world cities and communities in some of the more severe disasters and collapses, and each prepper needs to consider this ahead of time. The difference between a third world town or, or city with poor sanitation and a post-apocalyptic 21st century world, first world city is that those in the third world have adapted to such conditions. Most modern first world cities, towns, and suburbs are ill-prepared for such conditions, and rightfully so. We enjoy the benefits of robust, well-designed sewage systems and wastewater treatment facilities that make modern life relatively clean when compared to that of our ancestors. However, in some of the worst-case scenarios that preppers often have in mind, such as an EMP blast or a large solar flare, such facilities and systems would fail. Indeed, even smaller-scale natural disasters such as hurricanes or earthquakes can mess up such systems. In any of those scenarios, the problem of poop and pee can quickly spiral out of control. Let's consider a specific scenario. You're a resident of a mid-sized U.S. metropolis. Like in the previous scenario, a widespread grid-down scenario occurs. Sometime after the power grid fails, generators also begin to fail. Water mains lose pressure, and your toilet soon no longer flushes. Simultaneously, pumps for the wastewater system fail. You suddenly find yourself surrounded by over a million human beings in a relatively densely populated area with no place to put the waste they each produce. Of course, in the absence of a functioning sewage system, people soon find a place to put their waste and the sites chosen are quite similar to those of the past. Most choose to dispose of it on the road outside of their house, condo, or apartment. Rivers, streams, lakes, and ponds also, unfortunately, become a common dumping site. Pun intended. The, the stench of human feces and the sting of ammonia assault your senses at every turn. There is no escaping it. The stench permeates your clothes, your hair, and your furniture. You are disgusted, but know that you and your family, devoid of any other options, are also contributing to the growing problem. How can a prepper avoid such a scenario? 
First off, getting out of the city or not living in a large urban area would be the most obvious answer. It's it's unlikely that the individuals in such areas will be able to determine a solution in a short period of time without the aid of electricity, sewage systems, and functioning government services. Those in rural locations will find it easier to manage such problems, especially if you have the luxury of your own well and septic system. However, if you find yourself in a smaller community, such as a suburban neighborhood, controlling the problem of waste becomes far more realistic. Be aware, however, that someone, probably yourself, will have to be responsible for educating your neighbors on proper ways in which to dispose of waste. Education on the digging and use of latrines should be provided. It should be emphasized that it's simply that it's simply not cool to just dump the waste out on the street or on their front lawn or in a forest. Extra attention should be paid to those that live near any bodies of water or those that have storm drains that lead directly to such bodies of water. Depending on the length and severity of any potential disaster, this approach can be taken to another level. Uh, Latrines only have a limited lifespan, and space is often limited for latrines. Runoff and the associated consequences, including disease and odor, are inevitable. Hypothetically, a community-based solution would involve the collection of waste and, and disposal in a central location, preferably one that limits runoff. Hypothetically, such disposal locations could involve compost in the waste, uh, though such plans and the science behind it is beyond the scope of this book. Of course, many would be squeamish about using such waste for fertilizer, and rightfully so, but it would at least render the waste as a less bothersome byproduct. As is the case for the entirety of, the book, of this book, the point of this discussion about human waste is not to serve as a how-to manual. Instead, I want to warn you ahead of time of a problem that is often left unconsidered. Uh, furthermore, I believe that it is the problem. It is a problem that can be alleviated for some areas when a community-based approach is taken. It may be an uncomfortable conversation to have with your neighbors, but solutions for excessive human waste improve living conditions, decrease the risk of disease, and drastically improve water quality. Tip number four, embrace multi-generation and multi-family housing. The concept of multi-generation, especially more than two generations, and multi-family housing arrangements have become far less common in the last century. In America, for example, the American dream and its many promises have driven many families to place an increased emphasis on independence, especially financial independence. It's ingrained in much of society that, upon reaching adulthood, offspring should move into their own residence. Parents, meanwhile, often do not move back in with their children later in life, instead generally moving into long-term care facilities such as assisted living facilities or nursing homes, while others are fortunate enough to live out the remainder of their lives at their house or in an apartment. This, of course, is not a criticism of the norm in American and other Western cultures. However, it does stand in stark contrast to common practice for past generations, and societal norms for many other cultures. I believe that the West is overdue for a return to such arrangements and that the co-dwelling of three or more generations of multiple families in a single home will become far more common should a widespread and drawn-out collapse 
occur. The, the advantages are undeniable. Keeping everyone warm during the winter months becomes far more efficient. Assistant with, assistance with childcare, remember, schools and daycare won't be open, can be provided by grandparents or others. Security becomes less complex. A smaller area needs to be defended uh, should the need arise. Resources such as finances, food, medicine, fuel, and other necessities can be consolidated. A larger number of individuals in the same house makes for more variety in conversation and community. Once again, the benefits are undeniable. If you have family or friends that you believe would be a good fit for your household and would increase your odds of survival, survival is, after all, the purpose of prepping, I implore you to make plan plans accordingly. Such housing arrangements will become far more common, and it is prudent to make contingency plans for the consolidation of resources and living spaces with close friends and family members. Though these non-traditional housing arrangements are not without their drawbacks, uh, clashing personalities can create conflict, and rifts can grow between families and friends. Furthermore, if one party is less prepared than the other in terms of resources, there is no denying the fact that your own resources will be drained more quickly. However, conflicts can be resolved, friendships can be mended, and I believe that helping a family member or friend in need even if they're not as prepared as yourself, is a laudable act and is something each prepper realistically should prepare themselves for. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Tip number five. Don't forget grandma and grandpa. This is a topic that is near, near, near and dear to my heart. As someone that regularly works with the 65 plus population, I have the opportunity to see elderly individuals across the spectrum of independence and medical fragility. Many of these individuals are extremely prone to any life or death survival situation. And it's crucial that you don't forget about the geriatrics in your life. If you have elderly family members that live independently in a house or apartment, ensure they are set up to succeed on their own. If they received a large amount of support in their house prior to any support and any sort of collapse or disaster, they will likely continue to need that support or else will need to find a different, different living arrangement. If they live in a facility such as a nursing home or assisted living, it gets a bit trickier. Understand that, depending on the length and severity of any disaster, such facilities will soon become understaffed and undersupplied. Food will become scarce. Medications will run out. And any potential situation will be exacerbated should the power grid and water supply fail. In regards to you and your family, a decision will need to be made once it is apparent that the facility is no longer a safe place for your loved one to stay. Also, Understand that any decision will not be an easy one. It's often the case that the average household is simply incapable of supporting such individuals and their many medical needs. Some require frequent and specialized medical attention. Tasks, such as walking to the toilet or getting up the front steps of your house, may be nearly impossible without extensive assistance. 
cognitive impairments could make such transitions confusing and unpleasant for your loved ones. Let's explore a scenario in order to demonstrate some of the challenges you may face. The intent of this scenario is not to steer you away from allowing your loved ones to move in with you. However, preparation is often required, and in some circumstances, such living arrangements may be unwise. This is a scenario. A widespread power grid failure makes it apparent that it is time to get your 82-year-old father out of the local assisted living facility. You visit him we- you've visited him weekly for the past several years, with the exception of certain periods during the COVID-19 pandemic. He had been happy at the facility and had made n- numerous friends. Most of the past visits revolved around small talk, talk about his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and the past. His memory has been declining somewhat as of late, but your understanding is that his time at the facility has been otherwise uneventful. Upon returning to your house, he struggles on the snowy sidewalk and needs your help to stay upright. You soon realize that the aging man has not climbed a single step in several years and again needs your help to ascend the trio of stairs that lead to the first level of your house. He is out of breath and requires several minutes to recover once sitting on the couch in your living room. It's the last time you make the mistake of allowing him to sit on the couch. Once he's ready to stand, he requires the assistance of both you and your wife to rise from the low, soft cushions. Late in the evening, the smell of urine alerts you to the fact that he has soiled his pants, a result of an adult brief that had filled up with urine but had been left unchanged by you and your wife. You're ashamed to admit that you were unaware he utilized briefs for his incontinence. In the rush of the move out of the facility, you had not picked up the extra box stored in the closet in his room, meaning you have no replacements for the soiled brief. Morning brings soiled bedding and clothing. It is soiled laundry that cannot be easily washed without the aid of electricity and running water, and you instead tie it up in a garbage bag. It's nothing more than a stopgap measure. You and your wife scramble to help clean him up, though you can't help but feel he hasn't been treated with the utmost dignity since arriving at your home the evening before. After a long process, he is finally wearing clothes. The mattress, however, is left devoid of a sheet in anticipation of future episodes of incontinence. Your wife scrambles to get his medications ready for the day, though he still receives them an hour later than usual. Uh, one medic, one medication, Apixaban, is running low. He only has two doses left, a dose for that evening and another for the following morning. Another medication, Verapamil, is due to run out in five days. The other seven medications vary in supply, but none will last more than two weeks. A schedule of his medications was given to you by one of the few remaining nurses at the assisted living facility, though you're unaware of the purpose of any of the medications. You spend much of the day uh, spending uh, valuable time and using your scarce supply of gasoline, driving around town, stopping at pharmacies and other stores in search of medication. Pharmacists are scarce. Of the two you find, one has no supply of Apixaban or Verapamil. The other is unwilling to fill the prescriptions without additional communication with your father's doctor, a doctor you are unable to contact. You're also unable to locate any adult briefs while out. Like many other self-care items, such as toilet paper and shaving cream, they are sold out. 
You return, you return home unsuccessful. Your wife, exhausted from the time at home, has already had to change his clothing again. He is sitting on a plastic garbage bag draped across a recliner. He shows some understanding of why you removed him from his apartment, but it's evident that he's embarrassed because of the vulnerability he has shown his son and daughter-in-law. The following several days are more of a struggle than you expected. The garbage bags... Uh, draped over furniture, spare the furniture from his urine-soaked clothing, but it takes a considerable amount of time and effort to clean the laundry that has been soiled. Many sets of clothing remain in tied-up garbage bags. There are times that you and your father have pleasant conversations. He spends much of the time sitting around, much as he did in the assisted living facility. The change in routine has, at times, appeared to make him agitated, though the presence of his son has helped keep such episodes under control. By the sixth day, you feel as though the situation has slowly become manageable. You and your wife have developed a routine in caring for your father. One fear, however, that has persisted in the back of your mind is the adverse effects he will experience as a result of the discontinuation of his medications. His supply of Rapamil ran out yesterday. His last dose of Apixaban had been given to him the day after he arrived at your house. Seven other medications are due to run out in the coming weeks. Of course, you know that you have little control over such matters. The ongoing circumstances have made it all but impossible to secure a supply of the medications. You are ignorant of the use of the medications and their importance to his health and choose to push the concerns out of your mind. Two days later, those concerns have returned. You notice that starting the night before, he'd become more short of breath, even at rest. After breakfast, a breakfast that he only ate half of and took several breaks to catch his breath, you pull your wife aside to the room next door. You're concerned about the shortness of breath and are concerned if it is related to the change in medication. As the two of you converse, a loud noise comes from the dining room. The two of you find your father on the floor, unconscious. He's unresponsive, but you can locate a pulse. You and your wife, with a considerable effort, move him to the couch. You stay by his side for the following several hours, but no improvement is noticed. Late in the evening, you notice his breath has become even, uneven. After another 30 minutes, his breathing stops entirely. He's dead. Unbeknownst to you and your wife, he's died of a stroke. In this case, a blood clot had formed in his heart before traveling to his cranium, limiting blood supply to a large amount of his brain. The clot occurred as a result of him stopping an anticoagulant medication, apixaban, as well as the resumption of a heart arrhythmia known as atrial fibrillation, a condition that occurred because of the discontinuation of verapamil. Atrial fibrillation increases the risk of clot formation, a risk that was further increased with the discontinuation of the anticoagulant. Though he was of advanced age, the death leaves an impression on you and your wife. It taints the following weeks and months, and you cannot help but blame yourself, even if a similar outcome would have occurred had he remained in a long-term care facility. This example is not necessarily far-fetched. Many of the elderly would die in such scenarios because of the reasons listed above. In some cases, it may be nearly unavoidable. Individuals that require regular dialysis, certain medications, and other forms of consistent medical support will find themselves living on borrowed time. However, that is not the case for all elderly individuals, even those that live in assisted living facilities or nursing homes. 
and it's important to be prepared. Preparation starts with awareness. Is it realistic to have your loved one live with you? What medications do they take? What medical what medical conditions do they have? What type of assistance do they need? Understanding the answers to those questions will help you form a coherent answer as to whether it is in their best interest to stay with you and your household. There are no easy answers. Some may be willing to answer the question with a no under some circumstances. Others would be unwilling to allow their loved ones to die alone in a facility under such circumstances and would readily accept them into their home, even if their prognosis was poor and unlikely to survive more than a few days or weeks. If your answer to this question is a yes, then you need to prepare accordingly. Ensure you have an adequate supply of medications. Ensure you have or can obtain other supplies such as briefs, catheter supplies, diabetic testing strips, etc. For many, this entire discussion is purely hypothetical. It doesn't apply to you or your current situation. You may not have loved ones in such situations. However, for others, it is extremely relevant and hopefully has sparked some serious questions. Tip number six, what are you dependent on? Considering the previous tip, it only makes sense to segue into this topic. Elderly individuals are not the only ones that are dependent on something in one way or another. That prompts the question, what are you dependent on? Specifically, for the sake of brevity, I'll limit this discussion to substances and medications. We'll begin with the first. Countless individuals are, in some way, dependent on substances that alter one's mind. Caffeine dependency is perhaps the most common substance that individuals become dependent upon, though nicotine is also quite common, especially with the advent of vaping. Both dependencies can have unpleasant withdrawal symptoms. You do not want to be dealing with such symptoms in a disaster or a collapse scenario. To prepare in this regard, you have two options. Either quit the substance ahead of time or else be prepared to wean yourself off quite quickly as the supplies of coffee, cigarettes, etc. dry up. It should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyways, that addiction to street drugs or recreational substances should be ended as soon as possible. Though alcohol can be consumed in moderation for some, alcoholism should be similarly dealt with seriously. Find help. There are plenty of people and organizations willing to help. Freedom from addiction will vastly improve your pre- and post-apocalyptic life. From a prepper perspective, addictions of that nature will cloud your judgment in a collapse or disaster scenario. Withdrawal symptoms, some of which require medical management, will make survival more difficult. Use of such substances, should you be able to obtain them, will also put you at an increased risk of a poor outcome. Getting high or drunk can often be dangerous under normal circumstances. That risk is increased in life or death survival situations. With those specific dependencies out of the way, let's discuss medications that you are dependent on for your physical and mental well-being. It's important to consider what your supplies for such medications are and to ask yourself if there is some way in which you can increase your current supply. 90-day supplies are often an option for some medications. Furthermore, don't necessarily focus on the worst-case scenario. If you're taking a medication, such as insulin, that you simply cannot survive without, don't throw up your arms, 
throw your arms up in the air in frustration because a long, drawn-out collapse would preclude you from an adequate supply. Sure, if the entire economy and society collapse, such supplies will be scarce. However, let's not forget that smaller, shorter-term disasters are still quite likely. Increasing the supplies you have on hand could save your life during, for example, a local grid-down scenario that would occur because of a hurricane. Because of your access to medication will only be interrupted for a matter of days, a somewhat larger supply could make a major difference. Because some disasters or collapse scenarios may outlast your supply of medication, it's also important to be aware of potential withdrawal side effects from medications. Some medications that are used for physical or mental health may have little to no withdrawal symptoms. Others, however, can be quite serious. Benzodiazepines, Ativan, Valium, Clonopin, and others, for example, often have very serious withdrawal symptoms for individuals that have used them for long periods. Opiate pain relievers also have significant withdrawal effects, including an increase in the very pain that they help control. The loss of the benefit of other medications, too, can threaten your physical and mental well-being. Medications that treat serious health conditions such as diabetes, heart arrhythmias, clotting disorders, etc. are prescribed for a reason. When a supply runs empty, you need to take upon yourself the responsibility to get educated on what side effects you can expect. Each of these issues regarding medication need to be addressed ahead of time. Don't wait to call your doctor until the metaphorical or literal bombs are falling. Secure a good supply, get educated on the withdrawal effects, and be aware that, potentially, the discontinuation of some medications may be unavoidable should there not be a reliable supply. Tip number seven, don't be done with guns. Gun safety, under normal circumstances, should be a regular practice for any gun owner. Those same safety procedures and guidelines are equally applicable in a post-apocalyptic world. Keeping loaded weapons out of the hands of children, criminals, and untrained individuals is paramount to gun safety. Safely using those weapons will prevent unnecessary injury or escalation of conflict. Home defense will, understandably, be on the minds of many gun owners should a widespread collapse occur. The same will be true in the case of a serious and isolated natural disaster. However, in such extreme situations, the same gun safety rules still apply. Don't keep loaded guns in reach of children. Keep the guns locked up in your own possession or otherwise away from kids. Strive to keep them out of the hands of any potentially unstable individuals. Other aspects of safety, such as not waving the muzzle at other people you don't intend to shoot, keeping the safety on and tr finger out of the trigger guard until you're ready to fire, and knowing your backdrop are no-nonsense aspects of gun safety that you should have hammered into your mind. Bypassing such procedures could put your life and the lives of those you love at unnecessary risk. However, that's not the only way to be done with guns. An unnecessary or premature show of force can get you in trouble or debt. Consider the following scenario. Your suburb is flooded by the recent landfall of a hurricane. Emergency services are non-existent, and that has been the case for the last 24 hours since the storm left the area. You're sitting at your kitchen table with your family. As you look out the front window of the house, you see a figure walking in the middle of the road. 
You quickly realize the man is carrying an AR-15 style rifle. He's wearing a drab colored clothing and sports a tactical vest with an assortment of magazines and other objects strapped on the molly webbing. Is this man a threat? I, I would hope that each of you would quickly classify this man as a potential threat. He could be a well-meaning individual that takes the security of the neighborhood seriously, but has bypassed the important step of communicating those intentions to you, his neighbor. Conversely, he could be a well-equipped looter. Without more information, it's difficult to know. A lack of information can lead to panic and distrust. With a community in a state of heightened awareness and possibly paranoia, it's not hard to imagine a scenario in which this man is shot by another neighbor that decides even potential threats should be killed. If law enforcement is present, a similar outcome may occur. Look, I take this seriously. I think that things like drab-colored clothing, tactical weapons, body armor, etc., can be a part of that security solution for your community. However, communication with the community is key. It's also important that you maintain an awareness of the threats to your community. Maybe full-blown armed guards for your cul-de-sac or apartment building would, at some point, be necessary. However, there are also a ton of scenarios in which taking such precautions could lead to undesirable outcomes. Understand that guns, by default, make people uneasy. The more conservative or libertarian folk may disagree, and indeed, many of us would barely bat an eye at a man or woman with an open-carried handgun on her hip, uh, his or her hip while shopping for groceries. Uh, the same can be said about many individuals' perceptions of a Second Amendment march in which most participants are wielding long guns. However, understand that your lens will likely be different in any collapse or disaster scenario. Such scenarios will be, by default, survival situations, and your mind will be more likely to interpret a stranger with a gun as a threat. The same will be true of others if they see you, an unfamiliar man or woman, carrying their rifle around town. Be smart. Conceal when possible. Relegate the long guns to when on your property or in your house, or in circumstances in which the benefit of such security outweighs the possibility of escalation of a given situation because of the rifle's presence. Tip number eight, be realistic about gardening, foraging, and hunting. When it comes to prepping and food, I am a strong believer that storing food is a much better use of time and a more realistic way to keep yourself and your family from starving during short, moderate, and even lengthier survival scenarios when compared to a strategy that relies heavily on sourcing food from your garden, foraging, fishing, and hunting. Realistically, sourcing food after a hypothetical survival scenario has begun should be seen as a supplement to your current food stores, not as a replacement. Why is that the case? Uh, many preppers, I believe, overestimate their ability to procure food through gardening, hunting, fishing, and foraging. Part of that miscalculation may relate to the aforementioned underestimation of, of calories required to prevent significant weight loss or starvation. It also likely relates to a lack of understanding of the number of calories and foods obtained through these means. Gardens, for example, when planted with a wide variety of crops, have a relatively low yield of calories that is simply inadequate to fully feed a family of hungry mouths. Foraging, 
depending on your location, can offer a small supplement to your diet. Uh, those with good foraging skills can likely harvest some berries, roots, nuts, and the like. Though it's a time-consuming task, and with increased population density comes decreased opportunities for such foraging. Hunting and fishing, also time-consuming tasks that suffer in areas of high population density, as others turn to such methods for sustenance, should also be treated as simply a supplement to your food stores. Some locations will be, the exception, will be the exception to this, in areas in which many large mammals roam or fish are plentiful. It will be a more realistic way to procure a significant amount of food for your family, though it too will likely suffer as the masses leave urban and suburban areas in search of food. With few exceptions, you will likely struggle to feed yourself and your family using the above methods. It will take a significant amount of time and energy. The world's population, which continues to inch towards 8 billion, is fed thanks in large part to massive industrial-scale food production and refinement. The reason for this system is obvious. If it can be concentrated to the most efficient areas and climates for food production, and facilities and farms can increase efficiency through automation, machinery, etc., then it becomes possible to feed the masses. Meanwhile, the masses can bother themselves with their own professions, trading their labor and expertise for wages, and those wages for food produced by someone else. Farming I'm drawing a distinction between farming and gardening based on scale, is perhaps the only realistic way in which to grow a large enough quantity of food to feed a family or community. For example, a good potato crop for a first-time farmer in an appropriate climate would be 15,000, 25,000 pounds of potatoes per acre at approximately 350 calories per pound of potatoes, that would be the equivalent of 5,250,000 to 8,750,000 calories per acre of potatoes. If we assume an average person needs 2,500 calories to maintain their weight, that's enough to meet the caloric needs of 5.75 to 9.5 people for an entire year. Not too shabby, eh? Of course, these are not real calories. They're hypothetical calories. The production of that many potatoes is predicated on a variety of factors ranging from climate and growing seasons, soil, fertilizer, precipitation, the expertise of the farmer, avoidance of common pests and disease, hours upon hours of hard labor, labor that is concentrated around planting and harvesting season, and that the farmer has... In their possession, enough seed potatoes to actually plant an entire acre of potatoes in the first place. This ignores the fact that many people don't have an entire acre of suitable land for planting it in the first place. It's a tall task. This would be true for any calorie-dense crop, such as grains, soybeans, etc. Also, once dug up, each of those potatoes will have to be stored appropriately to ensure that they last longer than a matter of weeks. Is it possible? Yes, with the right conditions, resources, and manpower. However, ideally, we wouldn't need to rely on such a solution until well into a major collapse. I'd much rather have a secure food supply for many months, allowing me to weather the societal and economic storm, while also arranging for the resources required for larger-scale farming at the family or community level. 
Thus, I believe preppers should place a high amount of focus on their food stores for short to moderate term scenarios and plan for large scale food production if any scenario, such as a power grid failure, extends beyond a few months. Tip number nine, cities will be a death trap. If you haven't figured it out through some of the not-so-subtle hints I've dropped thus far, I personally believe that large cities will be a bad place to be in any sort of a crap as the fan scenario. The more severe and long-term the disaster or collapse, the less survivable such locales will be. The ideal manner in which to avoid being in a city during a collapse is not to be in one in the first place. Find a less urban place to live, work, and raise a family. Of course, that's not always possible. I understand that many individuals and preppers have limited control over their place of residence. Uh, For financial, family, or employment reasons, relocation is simply not an option. Others stay in the city out of preference, a preference I have no place in disputing. Uh, Though it's not my cup of tea, city life has its advantages. However, for those that live in or directly adjacent to large cities, you must have a game plan and a set of contingencies should a variety of situations present themselves. Ideally, you would be able to get out of Dodge. Bugging out is a popular concept in the prepper community. As you will read later in this book, I believe bugging in is often the more practical choice for a prepper. The most common exception to that would be the many preppers that live in or directly adjacent to large metropolitan areas. Before continuing, I think it's also important to mention that, up to this point, I have been placing rural and suburban individuals in the same category and separating them from those that live in urban areas. Of course, you know, the truth of the matter is that there's a spectrum, a spectrum that ranges from those living in the middle of the most densely populated cities to those that live in some of the most remote areas of the world. It's up to you to decide whether you fall into the category of rural enough, even if it might technically be suburban, or urban enough to, for example, bug out, even if your residence is technically suburban. Anyways, continuing, let's consider some of the drawbacks uh, to remaining in a large city in a short-term or long-term disaster scenario. The largest drawback relates to the definition of a city itself. A city, while being composed of large buildings and infrastructure, is largely defined by its high population density. The buildings and infrastructure are simply the natural consequence of the high population density. This creates all sorts of problems that exacerbate some of the same circumstances that those in the suburban and rural areas will also face. Rural and suburban preppers, like their urban counterparts, will potentially have to deal with a loss of electricity, loss of water and sewage, though wells and septic tanks can alleviate this problem for those that are rural enough, limited emergency services, little to no waste disposal, and a general lack of goods such as food, medicine, and other necessities. Furthermore, urban areas are less likely to have some of the geographic benefits of suburban and rural areas. For example, streams, ponds, and lakes are more likely to be found in suburban and rural areas. Uh, Though many major cities are indeed built along waterways or near oceans, salt water does little to alleviate the need for fresh water, and waterways or other other large sources of fresh water are likely to soon become entirely unsafe to use for any purpose, including for drinking and cooking, as a result of inappropriate disposal of human waste. 
If you have any doubt of this, reconsider the previously discussed problem of human waste disposal in a full-blown crap-hits-the-fan situation, pun intended. Once again, this problem does exist for suburban and rural areas, but it is much more easily managed. For some rural areas, a body of water that is within or crosses your property may be no worse for the wear in terms of pollution. Another benefit to having more area is that it opens up the possibility of using the land for gardening and farming. Additionally, foraging and hunting are also more easily accomplished when you have areas to actually hunt and forage among. Sure, city dwellers may find a small supply of uh, pigeons and rats and other small animals for a short while, but that doesn't compare to the wildlife found in even relatively small forests. Of course, as previously mentioned, foraging and hunting are still unlikely to sustain a population in terms of food and caloric needs, but can still supplement such needs. In terms of conflict between individuals or between groups of people, cities once again suffer from the problems of high population density. Many large cities already suffer from very high rates of crime. Such crime will become even more common when basic human needs are no longer being met and resources are scarce. The most ruthless and violent are the most likely to be the major power brokers in the urban areas that will find themselves devoid of local, state, and federal government intervention. It's not a place you want to be. Another thing to consider is that many large cities are likely to be targets of both domestic and foreign governments. The added attention from a domestic government may not necessarily be a bad thing if such attention involves a delivery of necessary food, medicine, and other resources. However, large cities are also more likely to be uh, areas in which draconian measures for controlling unrest, such as martial law, will be instituted. In the case of foreign governments, such attention may sound outlandish to many, but we are all preppers after all, and nuclear war is a possibility that many of us have considered. Now, like many others, I believe that there are no winners in a widespread nuclear war. However, survival would be nearly impossible for those living in large metropolitan areas in the United States, most of Europe, Russia, China, Japan, and other major world powers. The list truly goes on and on as to why cities are a challenging place to be in a disaster or full-blown collapse scenarios. Finally, I think it's important that we talk about bugging out. As I said in the intro, the intent of this book isn't to go in-depth on each and every topic presented. Bugging out, including a discussion on bug-out bags, bug-out vehicles, and bug-out locations, are all topics that are written and spoken about heavily elsewhere and, and warrant an entire book of their own. With that being said, some discussion is warranted for those of you that live in or nearby large metropolitan areas. For all the talk about what you should bring with you when bugging out, what your vehicle should should be that you drive, and, and where you should bug out to, I find that there are surprisingly small amounts of talk about contingencies for when bugging out with the use of a motor vehicle is not possible. Let's be honest. If you're fleeing a large city, many of which only have a few major routes in and out, there's a good chance that those major highways and interstates will be clogged with traffic. Hope and pray that you'll be able to drive out of Dodge, but anticipate covering some or all of the distance on foot. Invest in a good pair of shoes or boots that suit the weather conditions and terrain you may need to cover. Another tip, you're more likely to miss those traffic jams if you have multiple pre-planned routes that, is, that avoid the major roadways. 
You'll also find yourself far more comfortable and safe along the scenic routes. It may add a few miles to the trip, but you stand the chance of avoiding the anxiety and uncertainty of being caught in a massive traffic jam and also have the opportunity to avoid the large groups of desperate people engaging in desperate acts. For those of you that live in or near urban areas, consider bugging out to be a high priority. Ensure your plans to bug out are realistic. Make sure you have an appropriate location to bug out too. Finally, keep your finger on the pulse of local and international current events. One of the advantages of being a prepper is that you should be among the first 5% of people to realize that the circumstances warrant a relocation of your residence, giving yourself ample time to get out of Dodge. Tip number three. 